Christchurch, New Malden, 22nd of September 2019, 6.30 service. Nathan Larkin speaking on Understanding the Covenant with David. Okay, so as Stephen said, we are a few weeks in. In fact, I think we're four weeks into our series on Understanding the Covenant. And I really hope that you've been appreciating it as much as I have. In fact, I was just speaking with someone this week who was feeling exactly like I've been. You know, they said that they'd always known that the covenants were really important, but that looking at them in the way that we have been here at 6.30 has really shown them just how central to the biblical story they are. I've heard it said that the covenant theme is a bit like a skeleton on which the entire redemptive story is built. So yeah, it's really important, really essential stuff. Now, I don't know about you, but by the time I get four weeks into any series, I could always do with a bit of a recap. I'm one of those people who, who really appreciates those 30 seconds at the beginning of a TV show. Uh, you know, some people like to skip them, but I'm, I'm like fixed on it. You know, the previously on this or last week on that, you know, I, I'm a bit lost if I don't watch that. And so not only for that reason, but also I imagine not all of us have been here every week. So with that in mind, and particularly because with every covenant, we see the previous one built upon and expanded, I thought we'd start with a little bit of a recap of the covenant story so far. So where to begin? Well, in the beginning, we have these stories, these stories of creation and fall, Adam and Eve and the garden, Noah, the flood, destruction, recreation. And right back there, we have this first appearance of a covenant. And from Genesis on, we see it. God enters into like one formal relationship after another with various humans, all with this aim to redeem and rescue his world. As we've said on other weeks, a covenant is, is simply uh, like a chosen relationship or a partnership in which two different parties make binding promises to each other and they work together to reach a common goal. Each side will usually make commitments that they have to hold to, and each is responsible for keeping up their end of the bargain. And the first one that we looked at together was a few weeks back, we looked at God's covenant with Noah and for all of creation. Now with creation, God provides this world garden as a gift to humanity. And he appoints them as divine image bearers who are going to oversee it. And that's God's part, the human's part. Well, they're tasked with caring for and cultivating this garden and to trust God's knowledge of good and evil over their own attempts to define right and wrong. Unfortunately, it doesn't take very long for them to mess that one up. And we all know how that goes. And, and again, with Noah, you know, after purging this world of humanity's evil, God makes another covenant, a covenant with Noah and all of creation again, opening up a new future for God's good world based on his promises. God's promises in this one, he says that despite humanity's continued tendency towards selfishness and evil, that he'll never destroy them or his world like that ever again. But instead, the earth will become a reliable place where God will work out his purposes to rescue everyone and everything. And for Noah, well, this was an unconditional promise. God doesn't really ask for anything in return. But as you can see, there is the rainbow as a sign of this promise. The following week, we looked at God's covenant with Abraham. And God promises to bless Abraham 
which basically meant that he was going to have a huge family that would inherit a land, uh, a piece of land in Canaan that was being promised to him. And somehow God would bring his blessing to all of humanity through this family. That was God's part. Abraham, in turn, is asked to respond to God's promises in a number of ways. Firstly, to trust in God's promises and to follow him wherever God leads. To train up his family and to do what is just and what is right by God by following his commands. And then finally, to to circumcise all males in his family as a sign, another mark of this covenant. And then last week, we looked at God's covenant with all of Israel through Moses. God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt, and he promises to make them into a kingdom of priests that he will use to show himself to all nations. He rescued them by his grace, and he promises to come and to personally dwell in their midst and to bring them into the land that he had promised previously to Abraham. But in return, the Israelites had something to do as well. They must remain obedient to the terms of the covenant that we see embodied in the laws that's given by God at Mount Sinai, uh, which includes the Ten Commandments. And so that's where we're up to now. So this week we're going to look at God's covenant with David. Um, But for those of you who are sort of piecing this all together on a timeline in your heads, you may be thinking, hold up, uh, there's quite a big gap there from Moses to David. So I think it's also really important to briefly fill that gap, to set the scene, the context and the historical situation in which God promises to David they arrive. So, yeah, unfortunately, straight after this uh, covenant with Moses and Israel, during Moses' time, the Israelites, they just feel miserably to keep their end of the covenant. They made idols almost straight away. They failed to trust in God's provision. And in the end, because of this, they spend 40 years wandering in the desert, waiting to inherit the land that God has promised to give them. But we see that despite the fact that God was always going to keep his end of the bargain, that there would be consequences for those who were unwilling to keep their side of the deal. After Moses, we then have Joshua, who led the people. And he did eventually lead them into the land of Canaan, which had been promised to them all those years before. But despite this really clear fulfillment by God of this previous covenant, It wasn't long before the people turn away again. When Joshua died, despite having the land that they'd longed for, the people were rudderless. They were lacking any sort of clear leadership and direction. And sadly, the book of Judges, which we spent a bit of time not so long ago looking at here at 6.30, well, it chronicles their downward spiral of rejection of God and messing up time and time again. This period is a really dark period in every way. We see a recurring cycle of the people breaking the covenant and sinning against God, God disciplining them and allowing aggression against Israel by foreign nations before they eventually call out to him in repentance and he sends a judge or a deliverer who will rescue them and they rule briefly before the people turn away from God and start the cycle all over again. This happens over a number of years. But at the end of the book of Judges, the author 
comments. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Which I think leads us really neatly on to the next period in Israel's history. And that's where we're going to be really focusing tonight. You see, the people wanted a leader. They wanted a king. But rather than making themselves subject to God's rule, as they had promised to do in the previous covenants, as they had said their side of the bargain would be, to submit themselves to God's leadership. Well, they wanted, instead of God as their king and their ruler, they wanted a human king. They wanted to be just like all the other nations around them. And even despite the fact that they had been called to be set apart and to be different, they still wanted to be just like those other nations. Now, the problem wasn't in them wanting a king per se, but it was that the king should at least be a man of God's choice and of God's timing, who should rule the people according to the principles of the Israelite covenant. But Israel's first king, who was referenced in the reading, was Saul. And he was the king that the people deserved. The king to show their strength, a king just like that of their neighbours. We might call him the people's king. But ultimately, God was faithful to his weak and failing people. And he eventually chooses a king to be his man on the throne. A man who's described as being a man after God's own heart. A man to represent him and to lead the people in worship of and obedience to their God. A man called David. Now the main passage in the Old Testament that, that deals with God's covenant with King David is the one that we heard read from Second Samuel chapter 7. So you may want to look it up and have it open um, uh, to look at now, as we're going to spend a bit of time looking at that. Um, it has a, a parallel version in First Chronicles 17. And as Stephen uh, already showed, you know, we've got different references throughout the Psalms, especially Psalm 89, to God's covenant with David. Um, and so, yeah, First Chronicles 17, Psalm 89, for those who are really keen and want to go straight home and do a bit of extracurricular work, that's fine. But for tonight, we're just going to focus on that Samuel passage, so don't worry. But yeah, that, that passage, it's divided in half, really. The first half, verses 1 to 17, narrating this revelation of divine promises given to David as king. And then the second half, from 18 to the end, well, that's recording David's response in worship to God. And it begins with David talking to God's prophet, Nathan. And uh, David comments to Nathan that he feels really that it's time to build God a home. I think mainly he just doesn't feel comfortable that, you know, while he, David, is living in this grand house built of cedar wood and filled with all sorts of lavish ornamentation, that God's ark remains in a tent. So I think he mainly feels uncomfortable about that. But actually, at first, Nathan suggests, yeah, okay, that's, God is clearly favouring you right now. If you want to do this, do this. But that night, however, Nathan receives a vision from God. And he's told to go and to relay this vision to David. And that vision is the covenant that we hear in, with David. And as always, this covenant is split into two parts. God's part and the human part that we need to do or that David needed to, to keep and his, his descendants would need to keep. 
The divine obligations or promises, well, they're again sort of divided into two, which were promises to be fulfilled during David's lifetime and promises that would be fulfilled after David's death. And the first are listed in verses 8 to 11. And he promises David that he will make him famous, to be ranked with all the great names on earth. God says that he's going to set aside a place for his people, Israel, and plant them there so that they'll have their own home and not be knocked around anymore. And finally, he promises that he's going to give him peace, David, peace from all of his enemies. As you may know, David had quite a turbulent kind of entry to the throne. This this conflict with Saul that ravaged on for years. And then even when he got to the throne, there's constant conflict with neighboring uh, neighboring uh, rival rulers and, and uh, kingdoms. But God promises David that that will all come to an end and he will have peace. But the second part, well, it's about what would continue after David is gone. And it's in verses 11 to 13, where God promises that far from David being the one to build God a house, that God would instead build a house for David. And that after David dies, he will raise up a descendant who will build a temple and a kingdom that will last forever. So that is the covenant. And at first glance, these eternal promises, well, they seem like they're unconditional, like nothing's being asked. And um, they are unconditional in that God is going to keep his bit. But that doesn't mean that David and therefore Israel didn't have a part to play too. In verses 12 to 14, we hear that God will guarantee David's heir their kingdom rule permanently. But that when he does do wrong, God will discipline him. As he says, he will discipline him in the usual ways, the pitfalls and the obstacles of this mortal life. But he'll never remove his gracious love from him. Now what's particularly interesting here is some of the language that's used. In verse 14, we read, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Now, that might not seem very unusual to us. You know, it's language that we have become all too familiar with. Um, You know, we are to be considered children of God, God our Father. But actually, in the context of this covenant, um, this covenant denouncement, it actually carries all sorts of connotations, this father and son relationship. Firstly, there's the very obvious matter of a son's need to be obedient to the father. Something that was going to be vital to avoid the consequences that God's referring to here when he does wrong. When he does wrong, I will discipline him. But more than that, this father-son image was a description of what this new God-initiated kingship would look like. It's almost like a job description for the king. And the king, in, in this case David... Um, later Solomon and, and, and on down the line, the king's job was to reflect the character of his father as all good sons did. The king is to be the image of God, which may go a little bit to explaining that strange phrase that's, that's often used to describe David as a man after God's own heart. Well, if he is to be the image of God, that, that perhaps is one of the reasons why David was chosen. Now, sadly, uh, and we don't have time to go into all of the details of David's mistakes. We, we 
uh, prayed through one of the Psalms of his most famous mistake um, in having Uriah killed and taking his wife. David had plenty of mistakes. Sadly, neither David nor any of his children would ever fully live up to this calling. And the consequences are well documented. And actually, we'll look at some of those consequences next week through the prophet's words. But in this way, the Davidic king is is inheriting this father-son, this role that both Adam as son of God or image of God and Israel as the son and reflection of God, they had these roles that are being inherited now by the king. So far, none of these covenants, neither Adam nor Noah, Abraham or Moses, have been able to keep up the human side. Yet God has stayed true to his part of the deal. However poorly humanity first, and then Israel as humanity's representative, however poorly they've done in their attempts to reflect the character of God to his creation, God has stuck by them. But just as Israel, in their covenant, had taken the reins from all of mankind in the responsibility of reflecting God's nature and being a blessing, well, the king would now bear the responsibility of leading the people in this calling. That was his job. He would be encouraging them to follow the way of God and demonstrating what it might look like in practice for all nations, not just Israel. Now, as I said, God has kept his part of the bargain up to now and God will keep his being God. God will be faithful to his promises, promises of a dynasty, a kingdom, an eternal throne. But Nathan makes it clear when he relays this message to David that God will keep them only when the throne is occupied by a faithful and obedient son. And what the subsequent course of history shows us is that despite some of David's descendants doing better than others, some following closer to God than others, that God would not only have to keep his side of the promises, but that he would also have to provide the obedient son himself if the covenant was to ever be fulfilled. Unfortunately, we know, and without skipping too far ahead, that David would one day have a descendant who would live up to this calling. But as I say, that's for another week. So for now, and as we finish, what can we learn from this covenant with David? Does it have anything to say to us today, or has it just been kind of replaced? Is it just another um, link in the chain to what we ultimately have? Well, I think that there's loads we can learn from this. You'll have heard it said before that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But I think it's been really interesting to see how many patterns of failure and rejection of God's way have emerged as we've looked at this covenant theme. It seems to happen over and over again. Almost as soon as Noah steps off the the ark, he messes up, he sins, he breaks the covenant. As soon as the covenant has been given to Moses, he he comes down the mountain and he sees the golden calf and Israel messing up. We see these mistakes happening over and over again. And God remains faithful. But time and time again, they thought that they knew better. Now, a lot of time has passed since David had that conversation with Nathan, the prophet. But how many of that still sounds so familiar? We know what we should do. We know 
what God would like us to do. He knows the type of people he's called us to be. But we still somehow feel like we have a better track on that, that we have an inside track. We should do things our way. As we look at the chaos, Stephen referenced it um, with regards to this prayer meeting um, and, and Brexit and all of the kind of divisions, we look at the chaos of our current political climate, not just here, but actually across the world, it's hard not to wonder, rather than simply complaining, have we as a people, like Israel with Saul, have we got the leaders that we deserve? Do we actually want God as king Or, like the Israelites, do we want to simply nod to God's importance while really wanting to be just like everyone else around us and to have things the way we would like it to be? We so often choose to live as if we're the centre of the universe. But that's not the way of God. And when we turn away, we know that sin bears its own consequences. And yet God remains faithful to us. God sticks by us whether we deserve it or not, whether we mess up or not. But the challenge remains, we, like King David, have that same challenge. We are to be image bearers. We are to be reflectors of God, showing the world what it can be. And like him and his descendants, we aren't aren't perfect. I'm the first to admit that. We won't get it right all the time, but that doesn't mean we don't need to try. So as image bearers and as children of God, may our lives and the choices we make point to the Father of all things. May our obedience demonstrate that Jesus truly is our King. And may our love reflect the love of God to a world that so badly needs him.